So as I was talking about the cancer and the immune fight, right? It's a constant, very dynamic interaction that's happening in humans. Um, um, what happens is there's a part of the story in which the you know you can continue to address and reinvigorate cells to a certain point. But you may get to a point in which there just aren't enough cells to do the job that's necessary. So what we've been studying is how could we actually take the most effective or most highly conserved or most potent cell in immunity and how can we get that cell to a high enough concentration that it can, it can really do the job in eliminating disease. Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I'm your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the next episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. On this show, we like to talk about cell therapies and their role in treating cancer. We have discussed before the advances in CAR-T cell therapy space, and today we will dive deep on a new class of targeted cell therapies used in oncology, INKT cells. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Jennifer Buell, the founder, CEO, and president of Mink Therapeutics, and the former president and COO of Agenus. Jennifer has over 25 years of experience in the biopharmaceutical space, having held multiple positions at biotech companies. In her tenure at Agenus, she transformed a neo-antigen vaccine development startup into a multifaceted company with a strong global footing. She is now leading Mink Therapeutics, the precision oncology company that develops targeted INKT cells for treatment of various types of cancer and autoimmune diseases. Jennifer, thank you so much for accepting my invitation and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be a part of it. Perfect. Great. Jennifer, uh, we would really like to, to hear your story and how you got started. So what I'm really curious about, what got you interested in biology, particularly molecular and cell biology, and how has that interest led you to the place you are at today? Thanks for the question. You know, I had, um, this is something that I've come to know, actually, I've reflected on this quite a bit uh, later in life. But when I was born, I had, um, I faced some difficult immune uh, diseases, and I was quite sick and hospitalized at a very young age as a toddler. And so health and biology and optimizing health was a big part of my life, thinking about it. It was sort of at the forefront of how I interacted with my relatives, my, my, my family. Uh, and as I had started to grow, even at a very young age, um, reading books and coming to learn about science and scientists, I was really drawn to the likes of Linus Pauling and Louis Pasteur and thinking about how we're constantly facing these threats and how does the, how does the body actually protect itself and thrive and survive? Um, in biology, the underpinnings of biology, the building blocks of biology were really a, a natural and early passion of mine. And it grew from there into immunology. And I'll tell you a little bit about that. As I was growing up and going through um, undergrad and graduate, my graduate work, I was really focusing on molecular biology, cell biology, and interrogating the underpinnings of how you can actually optimize the function and performance of certain cells throughout the body. And that was from, from birth to aging. And there was such a different pattern in the complexity of the process, of the biologic process and cell optimization. I spent a lot of time pursuing and studying uh, nutrients and the actual chemical structure of nutrients. These are, of course, elements that we consume that allow us to thrive. Uh, but we don't spend a lot of time in thinking about how those actual structures, how those consumables are, are a, a different type of medicine and that they in and of themselves have very important structures that have 
um, important prolific biologic implications. That, and that just said differently, there are certain mechanisms and pathways within a cell and cell function that actually require certain vitamins, B12, for example, B6, folate. Uh, we know about that largely from seeing what happens when, when we don't have those nutrients with birth de defects and spina bifida in, um, in a folate deficient mother before birth. So these types of disease and, and nutrient and chemical interactions were a real, a real fas fascination for me. I did my graduate work in a joint program with uh, Tufts University, the Medical Center, and the Nutrition Center, the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Medicine. And what I had um, experienced there was first, how did we actually take these nutrient structures and create some of the very earliest forms of chemotherapy to fight cancer? Methotrexate, for example, building upon those same structures and mechanisms that I was just referring to. And that led me to learn quite a bit about a very specific uh, um, hormone that we call a vitamin um, that actually regulates a number of different biologic processes. I came to know that this is, of course, a hydroxy vitamin D. We know it is vitamin D. It's actually a hormone that regulates a lot of pathways uh, that I pursued my studies of. And part of that was immunity. Does anyone think about vitamin D or vitamin A in immunity? And historically, they have not. And as we started interrogating, diseases of the aging are associated with certain deficiencies and some metabolic processes. And some of these vitamins, like vitamin D, you think about dementia and bone diseases. But diseases of immunity uh, are actually underlying some of those processes. Um, so I, I started a pathway of study, of sub-study, interrogating, really optimizing the immune system. It brought me to uh, a genus at first, and then later to launch Mink Therapeutics, which is really focusing on thinking about ways in which you can take a healthy donor's immune system and transplant it into a sick person. And what we're seeing now already in the clinic is that it's possible to do that and that it actually may work. And I'm happy to go into more of that later. But my journey was really based on experiences that I had as a young child that put a lot of the umbrella of health at the forefront of my, my thinking, my family's thinking. So I was, I was surrounded by books of wonderful inventors and uh, physicians and scientists uh, that really drew me into a life focused on science and medicine and advancing human health. Perfect. Yeah, it's such an amazing story. And uh, as you said, I think immunology finds its way everywhere in every single aspect of biology. Personally, I haven't thought about vitamin D or A in the immunology context before. Now I'll certainly will. Um, very curious to hear about your experiences at, at Agenus, because that's, again, the company that is focused around using immunological approaches to, to, fight, to fight cancer. So I'm curious, how the idea of the Agenus evolved over time? Oh, such a great question. Agenus has been um, in the study of immunity and cancer for over 27 years, one of the early pioneers in this, in this space and in the study. And the company was founded really on focusing ways in which you can train an individual's immune system by using their, their cancer. Can their tumor become their treatment? And the company actually industrialized this approach in which we would take a patient's tumor and we would have it shipped to our manufacturing site in Lexington, Massachusetts. We'd create a vaccine within a matter of a very short time and send it back to those patients. And that focus, what we saw were remarkable results in some patients. We saw patients with metastatic melanoma, with um, very extensive disease. They would receive their vaccine and we would see disease regression, in some cases, disease elimination. And we published this really widely. Um, we also conducted the study. I came to know a genus when I was studying this particular mechanism in the brain, looking at uh, hormonal regulation of different neurologic neuroinflammation. And, um, and I had come to know a brain surgeon who was actually advancing this vaccine in patients with brain cancer and seeing really remarkable results. The idea is, and what we've shown as a company, is that you can take a patient's tumor, 
create a treatment, administer that treatment, and it actually educates the patient's immune system against the antigens or the proteins that are on their cancer. So as that cancer may be eliminated, but there may be microscopic components of that tumor or the proteins that can ultimately lead to a metastatic disease. And if your immune system is trained in a certain way, it can seek out and destroy those micro metastatic disease cells uh, before they actually establish themselves. So the, the vaccine technology was really critical. What we had learned through the process of our study, we could show that we could take the vaccine, we could educate the immune system, we would mobilize a, an army of immune cells really going towards the tumor. But what we came to know in the early part of 2000, um, we came to know something that is now widely known as the checkpoint blockade. It's the tumor's ability to protect itself against immune attack. So we could take a patient's tumor, create and educate their immune system to really seek out and destroy their cancer. When, they, when the immune cells would get to can the cancer, the cancer would fight back. It would upregulate these proteins that allowed it to actually eliminate those immune cells or hide from that immune attack. So what we decided to do was to start building on our learnings. We, we probably have one of the largest data sets in studying the interaction between the immune system and cancer. So we decided to build all of the capabilities we needed to start to shut down the tumor's protective mechanisms. And in about, in a five-year period, uh, we brought 17 new discoveries, new medicines into the clinic. Um, all of them now are advancing in later stage development. We have um, products that we're advancing. These, these discoveries were advancing in our own hands, but also uh, in the hands of partners. So we've licensed some of these compounds to Bristol Myers Squibb, to Merck, uh, Beta Pharmaceuticals, Insight, Gilead, etc., to enable patients to have access to these therapies more quickly. But the real focus was to look at the way that the tumors and the immune system interact um, is very complex and it requires combinations. So the more combinations that we could develop and build and the more innovations we could get ahead of the cancer survival cycle. Right now, what you see is that cancers, patients are treated some of those treatments actually select for the most lethal clones, the most lethal and aggressive cancer clones. So those clones, even if there are only a few of them, they grow, they expand, and then they spread disease very, very quickly. So then you're fighting you know, against the tide in order to overcome those very lethal clones. And what we've done at Agenis was actually build a portfolio that allows us to continue to stay ahead of cancer's ability to survive, ideally changing the trajectory of the patient's disease. So imagine off, you know, internally we talk about curing cancer, and that sounds really lofty um, because in part, you know, we we are all now tuned in to what pandemics can do and the lives that it can take. But what we're forgetting is that cancer takes hundreds of thousands of lives every year. And we've become so accustomed, so immune actually to hearing the words cancer, we make an assumption that it's undefeatable in the world. We see friends and families, everyone is really suffering in some capacity through by this disease process. And even someone who has endless access to money, like Steve Jobs, could not buy a cure. And I think what that means is that there's a problem with the market. We're doing something wrong. So a Genesis way of addressing this is to build so many different innovations to stay ahead of the cancer, to follow the cancer. And we've developed a platform that in which we can monitor how the immune cells are fighting disease. And when they get too tired to fight, what we can intervene with. To, to essentially reactivate the cells to continue to fight. So we've developed, we call it a vision assay that allows us to see when the immune cells are fighting and when they get too tired to fight. And then we have a therapy to intervene to reinvigorate those T cells to keep fighting. And that's such an important part of the story, but it's not the only part of the story. Uh, and that's why we've we've launched Mink Therapeutics to address a really important component that's not addressed exclusively with checkpoint modulating antibodies.
Yeah, perfect. It sounds amazing. And uh, as you said, I think it's very important to approach cancer from multiple angles uh, because it's extremely difficult to, to truly cure. And I'm curious about this transition from uh, your transition from agonist to, to mink therapeutics and what was the rationale behind spinning out? Uh, this is a separate company. I'm very curious to hear actually about this INKT cell approach. Well, I'm very happy to be talking about INKT cells, actually. I think that they are just so extraordinary. And as someone who's been really interrogating biology and immunology for some time, what I'm, what I'm most, what I have been most struck by are the, um, the evolution of INKT cells are actually the most highly conserved cells in immunity. And I'll talk to you about that in just a moment, but I'll start with where did mink come from? So as I was talking about the cancer and the immune fight, right? It's a constant, very dynamic interaction that's happening in humans. Um, um, what happens is there's a part of the story in which the, you know, you can continue to address and reinvigorate cells to a certain point. But you may get to a point in which there just aren't enough cells to do the job that's necessary. So what we've been studying is how could we actually take the most effective or most highly conserved or most potent cell in immunity, and how can we get that cell to a high enough concentration that it can, it can really do the job in eliminating disease, where we can get long-term, durable anti-cancer events. So eliminating cancer or getting it to the point where it's such a manageable chronic disease because you have the immunity to keep that cancer suppressed. And, and every time it tries to reinvigorate, it can be eliminated with, with, with effective immunity. So we had started the quest at, uh, at when we were at a genus, as we were interrogating the biology of these interactions, we identified this particular cell type, which is in very low frequency in humans. So it's understudied, but that really low volume is um, attributable to the fact that it's so these cells are so potent, they don't need a lot of cells to do the job that's necessary. Um, they're on the front lines of defense. So these cells, they're called invariant natural killer T cells, INKT cells. These are actually a subset of T cells. And these T cells actually modulate both arms of immunity. So when I talk to you about conventional T cells that you think about more frequently, those T cells operate one mode of immunity. And then there's another cell type, natural killer cells, T cells. Those operate a different component. So uh, invariant natural killer T cells are a subset of T cells, a very specialized force that are really quite intelligent. And they modulate both arms of immunity, both innate immunity, that which you're born with, and adaptive, the type of immunity that we think about when we're trying to protect against a threat like COVID-19. So invariant natural killer T cells actually modulate both arms of immunity. So they're very powerful in that way. They have the ability, they have a very specific marker on them that signals where they need to go. So when you think about cell therapies and particularly engineered cell therapies, you think about taking a cell and putting a target in it that will help that cell get to where it needs to go. Invariant natural killer T cells don't need that. They already have it. And in times of stress, these different areas, like in cancer, you see an upregulation of this particular mar uh, marker. It's called CD1D. It's a lipid ligand. The cells will naturally home to that disease site. And when they do so, when I talk about them as intelligent, they actually recruit T cells and natural killer T cells, and they modulate this, the activity of those cells at the site of disease, really on location. So you see that these cells not only could, could get to where they need to be, and they can dampen something that we call uh, myeloid suppression cells, those cells that allow cancer to thrive. So they change the tumor microenvironment. They make the, the, the environment for the tumor hostile for the tumor to survive. They do that naturally. 
They also recruit the kinds of forces that they need to eliminate disease, like natural killer cells that have high cytotoxicity, they kill on contact. And then, and then T cells that they actually draw in as well to give you that durable memory response against your cancer. So these cells work alone, but then they also really orchestrate and recruit in the kinds of forces that are necessary on location. Um, you might wonder, well, why haven't people been talking about these cells more? I hadn't heard of them before. You know, many people have not heard of these cells before. And again, that's that was because they're in such low frequency. They've been largely understudied because they're difficult to take out of someone and study them. But at Mink, what we were able to do when we were still under the umbrella of Agenis, Agenis is a company that is really focused on manufacturing, on getting concepts to industrialization from a personalized cancer vaccine. We industrialize it and ship that vaccine all over the world without any quality complications or anything. The, the vaccine, the tumor would arrive and the vaccine would be back to the patient within a matter of weeks and it would be in high quality. And we demonstrated that kind of industrialization. We've also demonstrated that we can industrialize antibodies, very complex antibodies, these bispecific molecules, multi-specific antibodies, monospecific as well. And with cell therapy, what we did was we tapped into that manufacturing DNA and we focused on ways in which we can take any healthy donor, we can do a simple blood draw, we can isolate their cells and we can purify them so that we can get about 100% pure INKT cells. And then we can scale those cells so that we only need a handful of donors to actually generate the population of cells needed for treatment. And these are allogeneic, which means that they're off the shelf. They're there when the patient needs them, which was a really important part of our development process. So the, the Agenis umbrella really enabled us to accelerate our manufacturing capabilities and to scale these cells so that we could study them. And it has given us enormous flexibility in what we could study. We could study infectious disease. We can study these cells in autoimmunity like GVHD, and we can study these cells in solid tumor cancers because we can scale them so that we have quite a, quite a supply. Um, so, so that was an important part of our partnership with Agenis as we were developing the technology. We spun it out as an independent company for a number of reasons. One, to independently finance the company so that we can actually recruit and we can fund our research independent of Agenis. Agenis is focusing on antibody development and therapeutics, and we're focusing on cell therapy therapeutics. So we wanted to actually have an independent company to do that, to be independently financed to do that, so that we can launch a force and really fully dedicate our team um, to do so. I had been previously the president and chief operating officer of Agenis, and I had helped to take the company from that single vaccine company really to the company it is today, which is a, a large discovery biotech a company with uh, one of the most innovative pipelines in immune oncology. For me to have the opportunity then to do the same at Mink Therapeutics, take a concept science that was really well established and then industrialize that science and expand and build a company from the ground up was a really exciting uh, additional en endeavor for me. So it was, it was important and opportunistic for me to do so. And I'm so thrilled. I have an in incredible team. We've got great talent. We've got the, the benefit of having the partnership with the Genus, which allows us to do combinations with the cell therapies and all the flexibility to do that with the Genesis pipeline of, of antibodies. So for me, it was a it was an obvious choice to move over to Mink. It was more than obvious to launch it as an independent company because the technology is novel. It's more advanced. We're the most advanced INKT company, so the timing was right to actually independently launch it so that it could actually achieve the kind of potential that I believe it can do. Perfect. Yeah, sounds sounds amazing. And uh, what I'm curious about is. Where do you see uh, the space of INKT therapeutics once they make it to clinics? So you mentioned already that they might be used in combination with some other anti-cancer therapies. So where do you see the main use cases for INKT, INKTs and uh, what, are, what are the possible combinations that they can be applied with? 
Great question. So what we've already established and we've presented some of these data is that the cells work alone. They can eliminate tumors and cancer. They can suppress GVHD on their own. They have natural capacity to do that. We um, And they can eliminate viruses. So those are really important biologic features of these cells. We launched uh, three different clinical trials studying these cells in solid tumor cancers, in hematologic cancers like multiple myeloma, as well as an infectious disease like viral ARDS with an emphasis on COVID-19. And we've already been able to show that these cells actually home to where they need to go. They get to the bone marrow in the case of myeloma. They get to tumor tissue. They home to critical organs of interest like liver, lungs, spleen. And what we're showing in these, in these clinical settings right now is that the cells can be administered to a billion cells tolerably. We're not seeing any problematic adverse events, no safety issues. Uh, we have, you know, what's commonly seen with other cell therapy approaches are a, a cytokine release syndrome. You, that's more commonly used now because of awareness due to COVID. These cells do not show any, even in COVID-19, we don't see any cytokine release syndrome. We also see no, uh, no brain toxicity or neurologic toxicity that you see with some other therapies. So the safety profile now is getting to be really quite well established in our hands, which we're really enthusiastic about. So now what do we do with these cells? Can they work alone? And certain tumors, particularly those really enriched with that protein, that ligand that I told you about, like multiple myeloma, like some cell tumor cancers, we believe that these cells will work alone. Data have already shown with the, in the autologous, the patient-specific um, setting in solid tumors, these cells have shown some remarkable benefit. Um, we've seen that it's bringing really durable responses in that setting, but it's not scalable. And what we've done at Mink is we've generated the manufacturing scalability that will be really necessary to test these with an off-the-shelf approach. So we'll be testing in those solid tumor cancers. The cells we believe alone, as has been demonstrated already in the clinic, we think that they'll have great benefit and, and promise. Uh, but the cells in combination with checkpoint modulating antibodies, I'll tell you in some preclinical models that we've presented at AACR, we see that when you take, a, for example, a lung cancer model where you can count the number of lesions on the lung, and you take agents, monoclonal antibodies that work in the disease setting, like CTLA-4 or anti-PD-1, Keytruda, Yervoy, Opdivo. And what you see in those settings is that those molecules can eliminate about 30% or 40% of the disease. Cells can do that alone as well. And when you add the cells in combination with CTLA-4 or PD-1, you see complete tumor eradication, particularly with um, with a Genesis FC engineered engineered um, CTLA four, which is called eleven eighty one. You see that when you put the triplet or even the doublet into combinations, you see complete tumor eradication and, and very difficult to treat diseases. So that is going to be a very important area. Our trial in solid tumor cancers will test the cells alone. It will also test the cells um, in combination with commercially available Keytruda, Opdivo, um, also with some novel agents like a Genesis 1181. So you'll be hearing more about those programs, but the preclinical data really look um, very impressive. And if these cells can continue to bring that kind of benefit, um, the sky's the limit. What we've also seen importantly, and this may be when I when I mentioned earlier that sometimes patients with certain diseases go on to a chemotherapeutic approach, and sometimes those therapies select for these super clones or these really lethal cancer clones that survive, and then they become really problematic. So the patient, they're, um, they they quickly progress and then quickly die. What there are some chemotherapeutics that also upregulate this protein where the invariant natural killer cells focus on. So what you might see is that these cells can work very well in combination 
with these um, with these chemotherapeutics that are widely used because as you see an upregulation of this protein, the cells will be primed to get to that area and start to battle, which we're we're really enthusiastic about. So checkpoint modulating antibodies are front of mind for us. It's a very important area of study, getting into the earlier disease settings and then expanding to combine with widely used chemotherapeutic agents will be very important. Perfect. Sounds fantastic. And uh, as you said, sky is the limit here. What I'm curious about is, of course, with all of new types of therapies, you have some challenges in bringing them to, to the market. So I'm curious to hear what do you believe the biggest scientific, maybe manufacturing and approval challenges might, might be for INKTs and uh, how I plan on solving them? Thank you for the question. So such an important point, taking these cells and getting them from a healthy donor to a commercially approved product um, does have some complexity to it. We're simplifying that in, in a couple of different ways. One, taking the cells in their native form so that there's no cell manipulation, no engineering for our first product, and we're seeing some very important, um, exciting, encouraging results so far. Uh, that will be a much easier approach because what we're able to do is take the cells in their natural form. We don't have to engineer them. We can simply activate them, scale them, activate them, and they're ready. We could freeze them, cryopreserve them. They retain their function. So that's a fully characterized batch of cells that, that's quite straightforward. We have a potency assay to interrogate the potency of the product, establish that before we're administering it. We have the manufacturing capabilities that are in a closed system. So the, the way to improve scale is simply to improve the number of, increase the number of closed systems that we have. And these devices are very straightforward, they're affordable, and we have the space to generate a billion cells, a billion doses per year if we wanted to. We don't need that kind of scale today, but it's simply a very um, well-designed, um, closed system process that allows us to take the cells from a simple blood draw, healthy donor, uh, um, we, uh, we have a proprietary set of reagents that allow us to screen and isolate cells themselves and very natural killer T cells so that they're pure. So that allows us to very easily characterize the batch. That's an important part for regulators. And then we can demonstrate through potency assays that the product's quite active and we can administer the cells and um, ship them and store them. So that's that's the first part that we're addressing to make the first step in the company's trajectory very straightforward. The second step then comes down to, well, what else can you do with these cells? Is there a need for super targeting? Would it benefit certain cancers more if you do engineer the cells? And what level of, of, um, of complexity does that add? And importantly, maybe I should share with you, so because of our history and where we've come from, we have some very important internal capabilities and very experienced leadership team members. Uh, my chief, my head of uh, technology and science is um, a molecular biologist as well, actually, who has designed these platforms that have given rise to antibodies that were at um, Metarex, acquired by Bristol-Myers Squibb, that's Yervoy now, the platforms at GenMab, et cetera. And so his engineering capabilities allows us to take advantage and expand our pipeline in three different ways. One, we can take invariant natural killer T cells and we can engineer them for super targeting. We can engineer a BCMA target onto them for hematologic malignancies. We can engineer a very specific target that'll allow these cells to penetrate thick stroma. That's an important part of getting to very difficult to treat solid, solid tumor cancers and we're doing that. So when we do that component, there are two really important pieces. One that the cells can work better than what's available. And in the hands of our scientists, as well as in the hands of other scientists, what we've shown is that when you can engineer a target into these particular cells, INKTs, and you compare, you compare them to engineering the same target into a T cell or an NK cell, you see that the INKT cells outperform conventional T cells, superior efficacy, and what we're seeing is, is better safety, improved safety at this time as well. 
So that gives us the opportunity to engineer without some of the concerns of safety that we're seeing with some of the products that are out there right now. That will help us from a regulatory standpoint, having a cell that can be engineered in ways that won't trigger any autoimmune diseases or disorders or cytokine release syndromes with these patients. That's an important piece. The other part would be additional ways of using these cells. Because of our antibody engineering capabilities, we can create INKT engagers. And we're the only company that I'm aware of that could actually do this. And that would allow us to actually engineer these cells in ways that they can get to certain locations through an engager, almost appearing like an like a, a bispecific antibody, but with the power of an invariant natural killer T cell. That's a, that's a really exciting pathway for us. So those components, what we will be, what we're doing early in development to help us accelerate our path to approval is we're building a really robust preclinical and early clinical profile of these so that we get a good sense of safety. And then our trials will be designed so that they're addressing that these cells benefit patients beyond what's available for standard of care. So we will be able to demonstrate that it's an important part and we'll do that work early on in development as opposed to later in development. So we'll have a lot of insight into the cells, the cell types, their function, their capability, their combination synergies and partners that would optimize their benefit. All of that is a heavy preclinical um, packet. And then of course, uh, early, early and robust clinical development packet. We are doing this show for you and your feedback is very important for us. So if you have any suggestions or comments or would like to recommend a guest, please write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. You can also reach us on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To catch our next episode, subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Please write us there and leave a comment. This helps us make this show better and reach more people interested in personalized medicine. And now, let's get back to the interview. I just want to deep dive on on two of the terms that you've mentioned. You mentioned supercharging of the INKT cells, and you've also um, mentioned uh, that you are trying to add some engagers onto them. So maybe you can just explain to our audience what the supercharger charging and engaging is and how does it help then make those INKT cells more efficient? Ah, okay. So, so when you, um, what we have been able to see is that sometimes in order to bring a very specific cell to the location where, to its battle location, where it actually needs to be to do its job, Sometimes the cells can do them on their own, like what we're showing with invariant natural killer T cells, they have a ligand that will home and get them to those locations. So we see that they home to bone marrow, we see that they home to the spleen or to the liver or to the lungs. And those are important attributes of the cells to naturally get to the disease site. That's that's an important part. And those cells can do so because they've got a, a a biomarker, an invariant receptor, a TCR receptor that allows them to get to where they need to be. However, uh, that will get them to certain places where they're needed. But you may have a a, a unique um, marker in certain tumors. What we've identified is in certain types of hematologic malignancies, you see an antigen, it's called an antigen that is expressed or overexpressed uh, when a patient has cancer. Maybe that's BCMA, or maybe it's that's a, a B cell maturation antigen, uh, or maybe it's CD19 antigen. So when when there is a marker that you believe would be important to actually drive for super targeting to get the all of the cells on location where they need to be, uh, you may want to engineer them to do so. So we have not yet disclosed um, some of the targets that we're pursuing to bring the cells to the location that's necessary in um, in solid tumor cancers. Uh, but we we are we are bringing the cells to places where in certain hard to reach, cancers, they're hard to reach because the cancer develops a protective mechanism. Sometimes that 
protective mechanism is um, is is oxygenation or deoxygenation or nutrient deprivation. It doesn't allow for nutrients to, to uh, be in the area so that the T cells, the immune cells are not activating properly, but the cancer can grow and thrive in that setting. So this other ways is uh, certain matrices or stroma that are that cover the tumor that make it really difficult for the immune cells to cross that barrier to get into the tumor to fight. So what we've identified is that there are ways in that we can we can engineer the cells to actually direct them to more quickly get to where they need to be to fight. And sometimes in the case of this, um, getting into the site, getting past sort of difficult stroma requires a very specific um, way of, of getting there, I'll, I'll say. We haven't disclosed this, but we will be soon. Um, I just, you know, so I'll, I'll be cautious in sharing that. This will allow us to take these army of invariant natural killer T cells and get them, all of them, on location, and then they can recruit and launch a really important attack on the cancer. In the case of, of INKT engagers. Now there's no one doing this type of work right now. You hear about T-cell engagers um, in which you're actually, um, you, you leverage the structure of the cell and you, you add on these, um, they're, they're called engagers for a reason because they're designed to engage with a very specific target. So it's another way of getting the cells to the location that you need. And in some ways, you can des you can design these engagers so that one is moving you to the target and the other is bringing along cells with it. And so with invariant natural killer T cells, they have the natural ability to recruit T cells and NK cells naturally. So we have the flexibility to actually um, engineer engagers uh, to, to improve the performance of the invariant natural killer T cells in specific settings. So you'll be hearing quite a bit more uh, about this over the course of the next year, um, but it's technology that we're really excited about because we're developing a deep data set of information on the cells alone, working in their native form. And then we're looking at the cells in their native form in combination with the most widely used therapeutic approaches, checkpoint modulating antibodies, certain chemotherapeutic approaches, and that will give us really important insights into the efficacy of these cells, their performance broadly, and it also gives us a very nice rapid path and straightforward path for development and ultimate commercialization. The other side of that though is can we then, or do we need to build on the benefit that we're observing with the cells in their native form? And in doing that, we may want to pursue and leverage the deep engineering capabilities that we have to actually super target or direct these cells in an even more specific way. There may be just one location for them to get to that has a, and it's, that, that particular location has an antigen and we can engineer that antigen for targeting into the cells and then we can administer the cells and they're just all gonna move to that target. So you'll see this really robust, we believe you'll see this really robust benefit um, when you actually take all of the energy of the cells and you put them into one location, for example. Amazing. Yeah, I think there is no limit what immunology and cell biology and molecular biology can do. And uh, speaking about kind of what is on the horizon, the question that we like to ask on this podcast is, where do you see your field in the 10 years from now? So perhaps, Jennifer, from your perspective, what are the three major developments that you see happening or would like to see happen in the field of immuno-oncology over the next decade? Well, you know, my one of the things I'm most excited about is the ability of actually transplanting immunity, taking a healthy immune immune system and being able to bring it over to someone who does not who needs it, who actually has a failed immune system and has succumbed to disease. I think that's a really powerful approach to start with, something that we're focused on now. And we can do that with this particular cell type because the recipient will not uh, reject the donor because the cell has a common 
marker that's present in all of us. So my invariant natural kill killer T cells would look normal to your immune system, which is a, a very powerful a part of the story here, as opposed to therapeutics really just transplanting immunity. And I think that that's an important um, next, next transformative step in development. The other important part would be, can we actually ensure that in a patient where we can either transplant or de novo, they have a functioning immune system, um, but they're facing a disease burden or disease challenge. Can they actually engineer what they need to in vivo? Can we actually do in a human, have them generate their own antibody product like we do with vaccinations, but can they do it so that there's not an infusion request can we get away from having to take viruses to do transductions? Uh, can we leverage alternate technologies in, um, within the human system, within the human system to actually engineer the cell, have their own cell engineering factory in vivo? I think that there is some developing technology that will allow us to do that. And I think it's going to be achievable within the next 10 years. I think that the other part of this is I would love for us to think about um, to think about aging in a different way. What we see right now, as we go through the stages of years and of life, uh, we start to see failures of certain functions, right? Faculties and mobility, and a lot of these are driven by immunity, inflammation causing pains. Um, inflammation causing neurodegeneration or, or complications with memory. They're multifactorial. I don't want to oversimplify it. But we do see that a lot of the diseases that we associate or commonly think about with aging are actually immune-related diseases. Can we think about using the immune system and in the way that we're thinking about it to start to mitigate some of the most commonly perceived or known diseases of aging. And I believe that that's really possible. And I think that that would be an entirely new uh, way of thinking about, about aging for our, our next frontier in science. It's just amazing to see how big of a frontier immune system actually uh, is or has become over the last uh, 10, 20 years. And it's essentially now involved in every single therapeutic area that, that, that we are talking about, including aging, which is, which is amazing. Well, I was, I was just going to say, I, I agree with you. I, and I think that the, today, when we look at what we have achieved in certain disease states, like in cardiovascular medicine, we've made just extraordinary progress. Um, but there are a couple of areas that we have not made the, this light, this kind of progress, and that is in, in brain diseases, right? Diseases of the brain. The brain and understanding how it functions is something that we are only now tapping into. And immunity is the same. I see those two is, is truly the newest, the next frontier in medicine. And I think that the more that we can understand immunity and, and immunology, the better we will be able to leverage natural immune processes to help us optimize health, truly. And when I think about it, you mentioned 10 to 20 years um, where we've been coming to know uh, immunology. And I would argue almost that the immunology of cancer, the true therapeutic agents that have finally crossed the finish line were, are only about 10 years old. So while the, we've been evaluating ways from the days of Coley's toxin and thinking about patients who actually have infections post-surgery for their cancers live longer, uh, that was the first, those were the, some of the underpinnings and early observations that immunology may play a role. But the actual therapeutic applications didn't come until very recently. And I find that fascinating. I'm hoping that we can exponentiate that now with the learnings and the tools that we have to start identifying what cells are important, using technology, biology and technology in order to exponentiate uh, the access to some of these agents. That's going to be so critical uh, in, this, in this new era. Perfect. And speaking about exploring those new opportunities, I think 
very important is that there is new talent flowing in this field and there is there are a lot of scientists who are thinking about starting their own companies uh, out of their PhD or postdoc research, a lot of uh, those young researchers. What type of advice would you give to them um, before they make this leap and transfer the idea from academia into something um, in the biotech industry? That is, that's a great question. I think the most important um, feature and focus for students who have made discoveries and have the courage and the passion, I think that they must be unconstrained in how they think about pursuing the fastest way to get their inventions into the world. I truly believe that the most important part our contributions to science are will never be realized in a business as usual forum. If we think about following what we call industry standards or business as usual, which is just taking your invention and just slowly trying to find ways, interested parties, et cetera, to advance it, it just won't go anywhere. I think we have to merge what the previous boundaries are of industry and academia. I think we should blur those lines entirely. And we could just think about where, what are the tools that are necessary to take these inventions, make them real, industrialize them as quickly as practical, and get them into the hands of the lives that are depending on them as quickly as practical. And that is truly going to require a convergence of deep academic science courage, a thoughtfulness, a strong pitch, <laughs> and um, in industry partners in some capacity. When I say industry, those are investor partners. Uh, those may be pharmaceutical partners or field partners, depending on the type of technology. But it's so critical to just be courageous, see, try to see through the noise and the barriers that are in front of you and just push and push and do not stop pushing despite exhaustion because you will absolutely find the right partner to, to, to bring things forward with equal or paralleled or even more um, passion. But you've got, to, you've got to keep at it. It's a critical part of this, of success. Perfect. That's a super motivating message. And I'm hoping that, that all of our uh, listeners were, were really paying close attention to, to what you just said there. And this motivation is, is essential. Jennifer, before I let you go, one last question. Where can our, our listeners find you online in case they would like to reach out? Ah. I'm, I'm available on LinkedIn, um, and I'm also, uh, minktherapeutics.com is our website. Um, I have a Twitter account, jbuel one You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. And I would say, do not hesitate to message me on, on LinkedIn. I check that actively, um, and we can establish then an easier way to get in touch thereafter. Perfect. Jennifer, thank you so much. This was an amazing interview. I really love your story uh, and everything that you are doing now with Mink Therapeutics. Wish you best of luck for that INKT pipeline. It sounds incredible uh, and amazing. And I'm looking forward to hearing the updates from your company. Thank you very much. It was such a pleasure talking with you. I'm thrilled to be a part of your podcast. It's been enjoyable to be a listener. I'm glad to be a participant. So thank you again for the opportunity. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. And don't miss the next episode yourself. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Please rate us there and leave a comment. That helps us to grow and deliver best experience to you. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's P-M-E-D-C-A-S-T Our show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the apps. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest, write us an email to team at pmedcast.com or reach out on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. Thank you very much. Have a great day and until next time.